episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Dublin! My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Jane Parkin. And once again, we have gathered around that microphone with our four favorite facts of the last seven days. And in that particular order, here we go! Okay, calm the fuck down, everyone. Starting with fact number one, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in 1954, it became illegal to bathe completely naked in East Germany. So naturists started going to the beach wearing nothing but a tie. (laughs) (laughs) So just before um, World War II, we've actually said this before, Hitler banned naturism in the Nazi government, but almost immediately unbanned it because it was so unpopular. And then it kind of became part of the Nazi tradition that, you know, we're going to allow people to, to be naked if they want to be, to be nudists if they want. And so when East Germany uh, became a country and they wanted to be away from the fascists and with the communists, they saw naturism as like this fascist symbol from the past. And so they decided to ban it. Uh, and there's a whole load of stories about what was happening with the naturists who just wanted to get along with the kit off. And the East German police really were not happy about it at all. <laughs> mm. That's rough. Were Nudity they... being taken down by fascism. Unless you've got a swastika tattooed onto your penis, <laughs> then I don't think they're related and it's not virtually oh just they God, are. Oh, my God, I imagine that. Like... <laughs> Because really, by the time you see the swastika on the penis, it's almost too late, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons why the East Germans didn't like naturism is because of the main guy who was in charge of uh, German naturism. He was like the leading light of German naturism, really. He was called Adolf Koch. Um, wow. And Adolf Koch was an anti-drinking, anti-smoking, pro-homosexuality, pro-sex outside marriage... He was a pacifist. He was very, you know, modern-day woke. Um, But obviously the communists did not like him one little bit. And so he was almost like the face, I I hope the face, of naturism. (laughs) And they really didn't like him, and that was one of the reasons they stamped down on it. But they couldn't, right? Because in the end, Germany is this strange anomaly of country, which I think makes them kind of the only sane country, in a way, where they're all, not they're all, but more of them are much more comfortable with naturism and nudity than any other countries. And it's going down a little bit. But, yeah, and it was started in Germany, end of the 19th century. It was by this guy called Karl Diefenbach, who moved himself and his entire family, and I'd like to know what they thought of this, into an abandoned quarry. um, (laughs) Where he lived with them naked, and he was taken to court, and then I think he was... For being naked and then they people agreed that it was okay and the thing then was it was to emulate ancient greek sculptures which were considered mm. so beautiful and shapely and so people would come to nudist parties in the poses of greek sculptures and then they'd sort of paint each other and compliment each other and sounds lovely yeah right it is, it is wait a, it sorry is hang on their yeah. costume was coming in the pose 
of a well, you, could yeah. like, you know, like that discus thrower. You could have a discus. Yeah, but like... you can't arrive at a party just holding a position. <laughs> but you have to be the... wheeled in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of commitment to a yeah, party, as well. You're naked and you're just not moving the entire party. But Germany, Germany does have this thing of being quite passionate about the, the right... They call it Freikorper Kultur, which means free body culture. And it's a really big thing there. So there was a thing about 20 years ago on the... There was a resort on the island of Rügen, and there was a bit of the beach that was a nudist bit of the beach, and there was a bit which was the non-nudist bit of the beach, and the resort hired uh, what they called Hüschen Polizei, or Panties Police, who... <laughs> were, their job was to ask people who were uh, nudists who had strayed into the clothed section of the beach to please go back to the nudist section of the beach. <laughs> but their other job was to approach clothed people in the nudist section of the beach and say, get, the, get them off. Oh, man. Surely they'd say, go back to the clothed section. I think they basically gave them a choice. They wow. said, you can keep that or you can stay here, but you can't do both. That's amazing. Yeah. Wasn't there a story... I haven't written this down, so I don't know the details, <laughs> but wasn't there a story of someone robbing either a shop or a bank and they, as they ran out, they leapt over a fence to try and integrate with the people around there, but it was a nudist camp. <laughs> <laughs> and the police came in and spotted him immediately. <laughs> Only dude with clothes on. In nudist resorts, the shoplifting is genuinely very low. As in, because <laughs> where are you going to put it? You're only going to hide things that are very thin. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You can steal some cigarette papers, but that's it, really. <laughs> and no one's smoking those cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> that's like Cape Dagde, which is a French holiday resort. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Which I didn't know about, but it's a full-on naked town. And in the summer, the population reaches 40,000, which I guess is just mostly visitors. But it's quite odd because the visitors don't wear any clothes, so everyone's naked. But there are lots of shops and the post office and banks and stuff like that. And all the people who are serving them in those places are fully clothed. So it's very surreal, like lots of naked customers and then just in uniform bank teller giving them their <laughs> money that they can't keep anywhere. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's very little, little crime. And they refer to the clothed people that you can see on the opposite bank as textiles. Mm. Ah. That, that place, Cap Dag, I think it's having a bit of a, an identity crisis at the moment because it's turned into a very sexy place. And swingers are starting to turn up. And the mm -hmm. nudists are a bit put out about this because, A, naturism is not about sex or sexiness. It's about being natural and, in the, you know, feeling your body in nature. I don't think it's a completely incomplete Venn diagram, though. Is the... <laughs> well, yeah, this is the thing. So the naturists genuinely are saying we're not swingers and yeah, the swingers yeah. are turning up. But the other thing is that the swingers turn up and wear sexy clothes and the naturists hate this. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because... yeah, someone was saying most of the shops there are weirded clothes shops, but they're selling kind of S&M... Uh, fetish. That sort of stuff. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which absolutely is not what naturism is, really. It's about kind of innocence and being freed from these constraints uh, of... Anyway, you look, I'll, I've got a speech I'm giving afterwards. Okay. <laughs> <Can I> talk? <laughs> Can I ask a very stupid question? Yeah. This is genuinely a stupid question, but if you were a naturist, yeah. would seeing someone in clothes be the equivalent of a sexy magazine? <laughs> I think... Is the, is the opposite of what... <laughs> <laughs> it's like their Playboy yeah. just, I don't know. They go, to, they go to clubs, actually, and they watch uh, people wearing heavy tweeds <laughs> dance around <laughs> the pole. 
there was a bit of a moral panic back in the East German days, what I'm talking about now. So um, there was a moral panic that people who were clothed and were walking past the German naturists were having their clothes stolen and being thrown into the sea. And there were a few reports, and we think it probably didn't happen, but they were just fake reports that it was happening. Wait, clothed people? So you're a normal clothed person, yeah. just going about your business in it. Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then suddenly a load of naked people come along, they grab all of your clothes, they rip them off and say, this is a naked place, and then they throw you in the sea. Wow. <laughs> they wow. throw you in the sea? Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely, that was one of the reasons why they tried to ban it, because this kind of moral panic came, and it was in the newspapers that this was happening, and everyone's like, oh, my God, I'm just going to be walking down the streets in Berlin, and people are going to rip my clothes off. We need to stop these naturists oh. now. Good identity parades you'd have at the end of all that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I recognise that swastika right there. <laughs> <laughs> Can you ask him to do the salute? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There, there was, was some small justification <laughs> to being paranoid about it being co-opted by, well, perverts. So in the 1930s, when the movement started to take off, there were fewer than 10,000 members of the Naturism Society in the UK, but the second issue of Sunbathing Review, which was the <laughs> euphemistic name for the nudist magazine, sold 50,000 copies. And there was a small suspicion that some of the people buying that were not actually nudists. They just wanted to see loads of naked people, ah, which makes right. sense. Yeah. And photographers for that magazine used to ship models to nudist beaches, take photographs of them, and then leave. But that was a big thing, wasn't it? So around the world now, the article that I read, there may be more now, but there's four nudist libraries in the world today. Really? So a nudist library, is, it's a combination of two things. One is, it's a library about nudity. So it's just got magazines, it's got books, anything that is about nudity. So the magazines that they have are not Playboy or anything to do with sexuality. But in the yeah. 60s and 70s, there was a boom when a law got taken down to say that nakedness could be represented in magazines. And a lot of magazines with nudity mm -hmm. were printed. And so this is a library that has all of that. But you are allowed to be naked in it as well. It's a, it's a nudist, mm. nudist uh, library. Here's one thing that happens to nudists. This is according to Stéphane Deschen, who is the new co-president of the International Nudism Federation. He was interviewed recently about nudism, and he said that one thing you can get if you're a nudist is you get phantom clothes. Okay? <laughs> he said, after decades of... This is the article. <laughs> after decades of living as a naturist... Deschen still sometimes reaches to pull up his non-existent pants after using the restroom. <laughs> yeah, that? I see it. So I see funny. that. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Do you know, I, so when I was looking at this fact, I, literally, I think I typed in something as simple into Google to kick off as naturism history. And one of the first results was naturist cleaners, which is the UK's leading naturist nude cleaning service. I cannot believe this exists. So naked people come to clean your house and it's a professional cleaning service. <laughs> Is it? I mean, I feel like I would have to hire another cleaner for wherever <laughs> they'd sat. It's like, oh my God, no, 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 don't sit there, don't sit there. Do well, they, they don't arrive at your door naked though. That's a really good question. I don't know if they do. Because ah. you're not, that, that's illegal, isn't it? So they must arrive it's in maybe illegal. a trench coat. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. No, it's not no, illegal. No, it's it's not illegal. actually, it is here in Ireland. Is it? Nutters. Yeah, Ireland hosted the, the 2014 34th International Naturist Congress despite it being technically banned by law. Yeah. You have, rude. A, you have a series, a selection of uh, secret coves that Irish nudists go to. 
And, oh, yeah. uh, and it's all done. <laughs> See on you the all hotel. after the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is it, Andy? Is it if we were back in London? Is it legal for us it's to just legal. walk around? It's naked? legal. According to the website of the Great British Takeoff um, <laughs> from last year. Um, they are very, very clear on the front page. By the way, it's perfectly legal. They said, by all means, tell the neighbors, but there is no need to warn them, even if you're overlooked. So long as you are not revealing yourself with the intention of upsetting people, it's fine. Yeah. I was intending to delight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that. It's uh, by the way, the Great, great British yeah, yeah. Takeoff uh, last year's, they gave you some ideas of what you could do. They're, yeah. they're basically saying, take your clothes off in your garden. They say you could sunbathe, read, sit in a hot tub, you can have a barbecue, um, you can kick a ball around, throw a frisbee. <laughs> do, kick do the a... other ball around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do a jigsaw puzzle or listen to a podcast. Oh. oh. So if anyone's listening to this one in the net, hi to you. Good Take a you. photo right now and send it to us. <laughs> right now. Do it. Does that and you can do that like on the on the in a shop or whatever? Because uh, in, in your in garden, UK. obviously, I can do anything in my garden. In theory, it's legal. Tesco can't kick me out People, if oh, I go. Like, like, Tesco's a private company; they can do it. Private property, like. they yeah. can. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, the police would take an interest if you're just walking around the center of town. Okay, and, but yeah. a hospital, not private, NHS, publicly funded. If I walk into a hospital butt naked for no good reason, they can't do anything about it. I think um, you'd have to wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, we need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 1998, one-tenth of everything sold on eBay was a Beanie Baby. <laughs> one-tenth... What? Whoa, 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 whoa. So if I bought a handbag, one-tenth of it would be a beanie That's baby. Right. <laughs> it would almost all be handbag, but the strap and one of the pockets would be bean. <laughs> uh, this is a fact about beanie babies, which for a while everyone was insane about. Um, yeah. But any uh, younger listeners who missed out on the beanie baby craze, they're just little stuffed bears full of plastic pellets. That's it. But that was the difference, because every bear prior to that, or any stuffed animal, was completely stuffed to the hilt, and there was no bend. But these little beans meant you could move it, and you could do things. Yeah. It was, it it was, was almost like it was alive, wasn't it? Because it could move around in different ways. Exactly. It wasn't like it was alive. It was just floppy. <laughs> it was a floppy teddy. And to be fair, I hadn't actually realized until researching this fact that that was the innovation. Mm. You know, because you grow up with Beanie Babies, you think it's always been like this. Was there ever a time before this kind of vibe? But yeah, before that, teddy bears were just like... Buff. <laughs> In fairness, Taiwana, who invented them, right? He was the guy who invented them. He did say um, the whole idea was it looks real because it moved. He thought, they, he thought these looked like actual bears. Yeah. Mm. So in 1998... 64% of American adults owned at least one Beanie Baby. Oh. That is ridiculous. I, mean, I saw insane. that and it, I didn't believe it. In 1997, 64%, like you say, owned a Beanie Baby. 48% um, of Americans in 1997 believed in global warming. Uh-huh. 53% uh, trusted the media. Uh, and 15% had a passport. That's compared with 64% who had a Beanie Baby. Well, why, why? Wow. you don't need to leave the country when you've got these lovely Beanie Babies to <laughs> occupy you. They started off, so Ty Warner, who James just mentioned, he, he was the, the man behind them, and he had limited success with them, really. He released a few, and they, they were doing all right. And then in 1995, 
two years after they launched, he discontinued one of them. There were problems with the factory where they were being made overseas. So he thought, right, sod it, we'll just kill off Lovey the Lamb. And suddenly, people were desperate for Lovey the Lamb. And he realised, oh, we're not going to say there are problems with the supply and we can't get any of these And we also won't made. say we killed it off. <laughs> it's true. Well, that, yes, you're right. He said specifically, it's been retired. So that suddenly created this huge demand for Lovey the Lamb. And that became the entire business model behind the Beanie Baby. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different models by the end, which were being brought in, phased out. It was incredibly hard to keep track yeah. of where they yeah. all were and to have a full set. But it's um, almost yeah. weirdly responsible as well for the fact that we have eBay now. As in, we had eBay at the time, but in 1998, yeah. eBay had 30 employees. There were half a million users on it. So the 10% of it was 10% of half a million users. What is that? What is what? 10% of half a million. No, not, no, that's, that's not, not what you came don't... for. You didn't come for a math test, Dan. Good Go point. on, I apologise. <laughs> 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 it's like your worst nightmare. Someone giving you a percentage question on stage in front of 500 Even people. Even though it's really easy because there's so many people here, I can't work out what it is in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nightmare. Well, you don't need to know. You're not the CEO of eBay. You don't exactly. need to know these numbers. Yeah. Anna, you are one sick puppy. Uh, <laughs> it's 50,000. Okay, let's of move on. Of course it's 50,000. We all knew that. Um, but so, thank you. But so, <laughs> when eBay went public, here was the thing. They were so desperately clinging on to this fad, helping them, because that was bringing in such a huge bit of revenue that even in the risk factor section of their annual report, it was noted their absolute dependence on the continued strength of the Beanie Baby. Wow. They were like, wow. this has to keep going. And it did. And everyone, Ty Warner and the owners of eBay, all became billionaires. Ty Warner's genius was in marketing obviously this false scarcity bullshit which by the way we're all falling for again with that weird word game that everyone's obsessed with aren't we now so oh one a day suddenly i really wanted you know what i'm talking about so he had so he had some other weird marketing tricks ty he wouldn't sell beanie babies to big stores like toys r us or walmart he would only sell them to kind of small shops and he made the stores that he sold them to promise not to sell more than a few to a single customer. So, you know, you'd, you reached a limit. And, you know, he'd monitor the stores really obsessively and they'd be under strict instructions to, like, not discount any. If you discounted a Beanie Baby, you got all your supplies whipped away from you. It sounds kind of terrifying. And shop yeah. owners would call him and beg for stock. And the only time he'd give them what they wanted is if they had a private chat with him about what customers were responding to and what they were liking about certain ones. Wow. It was like gangster. It's very, it's very, it is a bit mafioso, yeah. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there was a scheme. Allegedly. <laughs> I think he was in the mob. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, there, was a, there was a thing in Illinois in 1998 where there was a police force, a small police force in a place called Kankakee, Illinois, right? They said that if you have an illegal gun, but you hand it in to us, you will get a free teeny beanie baby. Which was no way. a special small beanie baby that had been made. They got 40 people handing in guns <laughs> in exchange for a beanie baby. But they were huge. Like, yeah, the, yeah the, the resale value of the teeny or any of the beanie babies was massive. And there was, okay, yes, he went with the independent stores to begin with. But one big decisive moment for the company was when he paired up with McDonald's for the Happy Meal. And so he did the Happy Meal and they were teeny uh, beanie babies. 
and they did 100 million of them, and they just went so quick, and it caused chaos for McDonald's. McDonald's were saying that people were ordering 100 Happy Meals and saying, <laughs> keep the food, we just need the babies. It was, they did television adverts over the worry that massive crowds were coming and the safety of the employees were in jeopardy. They were like, please stop. It got to the point where people were calling up to order things and the people were answering the phone by saying, good morning, McDonald's, we have the moose and the lamb. <laughs> like, but then surely you want either the beef or the chicken, usually. <laughs> It's going to be yeah. <laughs> um, I have a tangentially related um, gun fact, since Ooh. Andy mentioned guns. Yeah, cool. Ty Warner was called H. Ty Warner, right? That was okay. his full name. And the H in his name, he said, just didn't stand for anything. But the reason he was called Ty was because he was named after Ty Cobb, who was a famous uh, yeah. baseball player. Yeah. So then I just got distracted reading about Ty Cobb. But I found some weird similarities. Ty Cobb's story is amazing. He was a baseball player at the turn of the 20th century, so it's not too dark anymore. But basically, his mum... <laughs> we'll gonna... be the judge of how dark yeah. it is, Anna. I think the people of Dublin might be the judge of this. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be traumatised. Ty Cobb's mum shot his dad dead when... He... So... <laughs> It's okay. It was a long time ago. Dublin, Dublin's surprisingly <laughs> up for this story so far. More than a hundred years um, when the dad had suspected the mum of cheating on him, and so he crept outside her bedroom window to catch her shagging another man, but she thought that he was a burglar, so she seized the gun that he'd given her as a present to protect herself Whoa! and shot him dead through the window... Bam, Ty Cobb's life slightly ruined, but he did, <laughs> he did always credit his career success to his dad watching over him and making him successful. This is probably a good time to promote Anna's Netflix stand-up special, <laughs> which will be out very soon. No, I, I'm calling it. That's funny. The way That's, <laughs> don't, don't, the way give someone, don't give someone a gun. The way it's related is that Ty Warner also credited his dad with his career success because he used the inheritance from his deceased father to found the company. Wow. So <laughs> that's, that's why I told the dark gun story. <laughs> that's why she's paid the big bucks. Shall we go? Shall we go dark? Shall we keep going dark? Let's, Let's go dark. Um, this is according to the new book. So this is The Great Beanie Baby Bubble by Zach Bissonette, which a lot of, um, at least the stuff that I've been reading has come from. Uh, and he said that when Ty Warner, so the guy from Beanie Babies, when his father died, he waited for five days to tell his sister so that he could clear out his father's antiques collection. Wow. To take for himself? Yeah. Yeah, to... oh, okay. yeah he's, his employees don't speak well about him. Um, I do, because he's still alive, and I don't want a billionaire <laughs> to sue us. Um, <laughs> I think he's ace. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, Although he was, um, he was done for tax evasion, wasn't he? Yeah. He said he's he was. a good guy. He had 100, was it $100 million, which was in a secret Swiss bank account? Yeah. And every time he was asked on the tax forms, do you have money hidden overseas, he would tick the no option. And he did that for years and years and years. He had a rookie error, basically. The Wall Street Journal had said that he didn't really have very much money, not as much money as he said. And so he took out a full-page advert in the Wall Street Journal saying, I've got fuckloads of money. <laughs> and the IRS went, oh, you do, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
just another story very quickly that I, I just love all these fights over Beanie Babies. And there was a divorce that got taken to court. And during the, the divorce proceedings, one of the sticking points, which the judge got frustrated about, was the fact that the couple couldn't decide how to split up their Beanie Baby collection. And in the courtroom, the judge ordered them to actually split them up in the room by pouring the Beanie Babies onto the floor and getting them to each pick one, one at a time. Oh, and that... like, a, like you pick a football team. Yes, exactly, like yeah. a football team. And this is my favorite paragraph in the article is, I don't agree with the judge's decision to do this. It's ridiculous and embarrassing, Francis Mountain said, moments before squatting on the courtroom floor alongside her ex-husband to choose the first from a pile of stuffed toys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to move on, guys, to our yeah, next fact. Yeah, we can. Yeah, should we do it? Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that due to the interests of its production coordinator, Michigan State University's planetarium not only dedicates itself to space science education, but also houses the world's only moist towelette museum. <laughs> <laughs> and this is it here, the Moist Towelette Museum. Showing a picture to the audience here. It's uh, basically what it is, is there's this big planetarium uh, at the Michigan State University, and their production coordinator, a guy called John French, just opened the door to his office, put up a sign, and started displaying all the... Yeah, all the... I would say, Dan, can we explain this? Like, maybe yeah. describe it to the people at home, because it doesn't really look like an office. It just looks like a... Yeah, we're only seeing, so on the left of the photo that we can see here is his computer and his desk. And what he's done is he's set up two cabinets that should have probably relevant things to his job on it. But he's emptied it and he's just covered it in moist towelettes. And he <laughs> had this idea when he was at the uh, planetarium in Texas and he took a cabinet that had the Mars rover on it, and he put his moist towelettes on it. And he said, I noticed that more people were looking at this cabinet when it had my moist towelettes on it than when it had the Mars rover. Maybe I'm onto something. And I, I mean... guess no one had a choice uh, in the matter, but he now runs the only museum that has it. And, he's, and it's fascinating. He's got, he's got a thousand of these things, and people all over the world send it to him. And moist towelettes are incredible. The, the variety out there that we have of them is... <laughs> it's is, not that much, actually. Oh, no. I mean, you got you, there's specific ones to wipe on your fingers for when they're blackened by a typewriter. There are ones that you should use called Radiac Wash to wipe away when you're radioactively contaminated. Wow. There's, there's <laughs> what? A, really? I would hope, yeah. if I'd been contaminated by radiation, I'd hope for a little more attention from the authorities <laughs> than a moist towelette. <laughs> <laughs> That's very much the final thing we do after the big shower. <laughs> no, there, there was just an air stewardess walking through Chernobyl, okay? <laughs> a moist towel, anyone? Dan, this is the most punishingly dull area of... We, I think we may ever have covered what? the moist... What? This is incredible! <laughs> world of moist towel. Well, I've been captured by it too. Look, I found myself getting deep into moist towelette world because there are interesting, very interesting elements to it. For example, did you know that 6% of moist towelettes are used on cars. Unbelievable. <laughs> you see? That's, but that's interesting. Yeah. Wet wipes, 6% used on cars. You wouldn't have thought that, I would wouldn't you? have thought that. You yeah. wouldn't no. have thought it. No, but like, like, <laughs> let's, like, guys, give it a chance. This is a fascinating thing. <laughs> French has been doing this, uh, John French, for 20 years, and he even, he's even found the holy grail of 
moist towelettes, which is... <laughs> the moist towelette that Christ used <laughs> yeah. at the Last Supper. Yeah. The Turin towelette is... So exciting. It has his finger marks on it. No, he, he found... So he's only got... A, he had, John French has a website. I highly encourage you to check it out. Um, he can't reply to everyone who gets in contact with because he is inundated. Um, <laughs> And there is, a, there is an address, and if you'd like to send your own moist towelette to him, um, do send it unused. He does have one which is used, um, but oh, he but doesn't it's encourage a it. It's a celebrity one. It's a celebrity. So if you're a celebrity in the audience tonight, oh, do so use who, it first. Who was it? Elvis? Or? It was, no. Do you mind if I take this one Go down? for it. It was donated by Tom and Ray Magliozzi. So I don't need to tell you guys who they are, but... For any listeners at home, they host NPR's car talk show, and the moist towelette they sent him was used to clean off some grease from a car once. Ah, oh, that's so one of the six percent. There we are. One of the six percent. You can understand why he made an exception for that incredibly famous <laughs> towelette. But so on his website, he has what he says is the holy grail of moist towelettes. They're just not sending it. For fuck's sake, tell us what this is. <laughs> So it's a series of Star Trek moist towelettes which have the image of Captain Kirk and Spock on them. I've seen them. I've seen the photo on his website. And, yeah, they look impressive. Um, what, they just have a photo on the towel? No, it's on the packaging. It's on the packaging. Anna, you're not going to put, that kind of technology. put ink on it. <laughs> Come on, Anna, calm down. Um, Christ alive. Anyway, so <laughs> I knew it was a good idea to do this fact tonight. I can feel we're... <laughs> Do you want to know something about the history of moist towelettes then? Of course. Yes, please. All together now? <laughs> yes! Great. Someone said no. Get out. Out! <laughs> Wrong room. You do, you do not belong here. Um, look, the reason they became the phenomenon they are today and the reason we're all so excited by them is because of a guy called Arthur Julius and the Colonel. So Kentucky Fried Chicken brought us moist towelettes. And this was in 1958, and he invented it. And it, it was quite a big deal, right? The idea that yeah. you can have something that stays damp for so long <laughs> and, and that doesn't disintegrate when you're cleaning stuff. It's yeah. pretty amazing technology. <laughs> Absolutely. Damn straight. And so he struck a deal with KFC. Struck a deal with KFC to provide a free wet wipe with every KFC meal, which works because their finger licking good, but even licking your fingers sometimes isn't enough. And that's where they took off. Like everyone at KFC got a wet wipe. It's quite amazing that kind of how moist they keep. It's um, extraordinary. Have, they, well, they advertised it, KFC advertised it as what your tongue doesn't get, the wet wipe will. <laughs> Someone just commented, that's my Tinder bio. So. <laughs> they, um, in the last 25 years, KFC has given away nearly a billion wet wipes, and those wet wipes would reach halfway to the moon. Overall, the amount of wet wipes that this company, Nice and Clean, have made in America uh, is 150 billion, and that would go to the moon and back about 30-odd times, something like that. Really? Like so many. Wow. Um, but the moist, thing is about the moist highlights mm. is they make so many of them, and basically people flush them down the toilet, don't they? Yeah. And they so turn by the way, the fact birds. that you've been cheering them so far is disgusting, because they are basically the bad guys of the modern day. They're very, very bad. bad. They're a nightmare. Very bad. Yeah. They make fatbergs, basically, and they, um, the biggest fatberg in the UK, uh, quite recently found in Liverpool, it weighed 400 tonnes. 
and it was 250 meters long. Wow. Uh, and if you add that one to one that was found in Birmingham in the same year, those two fatbergs alone would weigh more than the giant statue of Christ in Rio de Janeiro. Wow. But no one, no one has suggested a switch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was also a 2020 study um, in Ireland by Coastwatch, uh, and they said that wet wipes are the main cause of microplastics in the sea. You know, like these tiny little bits of plastic, and it's because little threads come off the wet wipes and they end up in the sea. And there's a teenager called Fionn Ferreira. Um, he's an Irish teenager, and he's developed a technique to remove this uh, microplastics. And this original fact was about planetariums. Yeah. And he also worked as a curator at Schulz Planetarium in County Cork. No! So it's another... Yeah. Wow. So there's something cool, about... Something about planetariums and wet wipes where they're just kind of drawn together. Well, just one extra coincidence. There's a link. Um, the first ever use of the word wet wipe, the phrase wet wipe, was in 1966, and it was from a NASA study. This is really cool. It was a study called Effect of Diet and Atmosphere on Intestinal and Skin Flora. So basically, they were trying to work out how to... That was sarcasm when I heard it. <laughs> it was a study... It was a study trying to work out the influence of space flight, what it would do to the microorganisms on your skin. And they got, I think, 16 men, and they studied them, I think, in space-like conditions. I don't think they actually sent them to space. And they were kept in one environment for 42 days, and they were being kept without doing much washing, and their microorganisms on their skin were being studied, like areas including, I'm quoting here, the ear, eyes, nails, umbilicus, anal fold, you name it. The umbilicus? Yeah, the belly, belly button. button. The belly button. Yeah, I'm just quoting the fucking belly button, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm quoting NASA here. Yes. Yeah. What's, what's but anyway? Sorry, the, but what's anal fold? What is oh, it? do you not? Do you not have one? We've all ass crack. <laughs> is that what Sorry. that means? I can't believe I'm having to do all this translation <laughs> from this side of the room. Is that genuinely what NASA calls our butt crack? Anal yeah. fold. I'm afraid so. Anal fold. Yeah. But get this. The way they were allowed to clean themselves in this study was as follows, and this is where we get the phrase wet wipes from. Only wet wipes were allowed and were limited to three a day for hand wiping following eating and defecation. That was huh. all the cleaning they were allowed to do. Three God, wet wipes a day. Would you poo once a day and eat twice a day? Or vice versa? I think the number of times you poo on a day depends on how much you eat a day. That's yeah. a good point. Well, they're not allowed to correspond, James, so... I would go for, like, 3 nil, but on alternate days. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> Guys, we're going to have to move on very soon to our next fact. Uh, our um, final fact. Shall I quickly just tell you one thing about planetariums? Ooh. Or planetarium. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite ones is in Moscow, Moscow Planetarium. I've been there. It's really, really good. Um, they have a really, really massive dome. And what is cool about it is the outer dome is only 8 centimetres thick at the top goes down to 12 centimetres thick at the bottom. It's really, really thin. And that means that if you shrunk it down, it would be thinner than an eggshell. This Whoa. is this planetarium. If it was the size of an egg. If it was the size of an egg. Um, that's amazing. And the reason I bring it up is for you, Andy, really, um, <gasps> because it has a load of insulation in this. And guess what it's made of? Oh, God. Is it moss? It's moss. Yes! Oh. <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that 72 years after the first Miss America contest, the runner-up was still claiming, I won it, hands down. <laughs> <laughs> so this was 1921, and at the time it was called the Intercity Beauty Contest. It was in Atlantic City. 
And the official winner, according to the Miss America history, it was a woman called, Mar a girl, 16-year-old girl called Margaret Gorman. But there was also Miss Virginia Lee, who was, she's about 20, 21, bit, a bit old, bit too old almost for Miss America. And so it was between Virginia and Margaret. Everyone was saying, like, they're the two best at whatever you're supposed to be good at. And <laughs> then <laughs> when the contest had ended before the results were announced, and this is the first ever Miss America, suddenly Virginia's disqualified. And she was disqualified for being a professional. It wasn't made clear before the contest that it was amateurs only, but... What, what is a professional in this context where the criterion <laughs> is just being fit? <laughs> <laughs> well, a, that's a huge misconception. And B, I think everyone else had won local beauty contests and then been upgraded to the national beauty contest, whereas she just had modelling contracts. Yeah, she was magazine. a model, I think, is the point. Yeah, and yeah. also one of the judges of the competition ran the magazine that employed her as a model... And perhaps that was all discovered. And anyway, she was quite bitter about it. And she always claimed that they told her, uh, even years afterward, look, you won it really, but they said we can't give it to you, so this other woman won it. So that's the controversial start to Miss America. Yeah. yeah. It was quite an interesting um, event, wasn't it? Because um, these um, women were brought on with um, King Neptune, <laughs> uh, who was a one-handed inventor brother of friend of the podcast Hiram Maxim. So oh. Hiram Maxim, who invented the machine gun, his brother um, was this guy. He was dressed as King Neptune. He only had one hand because he'd lost it in a mercury explosion in 1894. Uh, and he'd invented smokeless gunpowder. Thomas Edison referred to him as the most versatile man in America. He um, sounds pretty versatile if he's inventing gunpowder and simultaneously pretending to be King Neptune at a beauty contest. <laughs> that is the apex of versatility. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and it was basically in order to stop people going home from Atlantic City because it was a big resort and people would go home at the end of the summer, but they wanted to keep people there, so they had this extra thing to try and keep people there. Yeah, it was uh, all part of the fall frolic. Yeah. The fall, so it was a whole big festival where they had lots of other stuff on, and actually it was inspired by the baby parade, which was really popular and had been since about 1900, where you wheeled out your fit baby in a pram, <laughs> and people judged it, and then... Uh, I was looking up. What would they do? Were there, was there a talent round? Was there... It was more like you looked at them and you put them in a nice bonnet and you wheeled them around. And actually, Baby was a stretch because I read in one newspaper article in about 1928 that the Baby Parade, you had to be between 6 and 12 years old. But then the following, the following year, a 3-year-old won it. Wow. Um, the, you know, there's, there are the sort of interview sections in uh, these yeah. pageants. You know, there's, there was the swimsuit round until very, very recently in mm -hmm. one of them. And anyway, in 2011, the, here are samples of the Miss USA questions. Which, Should... just to be really clear, Miss USA is completely different to Miss America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the questions in 2011 included asking whether evolution should be taught in schools, which is frankly a poser. I mean, you could spend yeah. hours talking about that in your answer. Um, and should the U.S. Constitution protect the burning of religious books? <laughs> but, to be fair, contestants were also asked if they could make the sounds of a cat, a police siren, and a slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> a slot machine? <laughs> Amazing. It's quite nice because when you read about the history of Miss America, from the start, women have just been really sceptical about it. And the biggest controversy was back in 1938... Uh, well, in fact, in 1938, Miss American contestants were <laughs> the, banned. The interview round was very hard then. What do you think about the annexation of Austria? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
do you think Chamberlain might have actually been right to declare peace in our time, given that that gave Britain vital time to rearm in the anticipation of an inevitable war next year? It was slightly too early for the Chamberlain question, but yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Uh, no, in 1938, Miss American contestants were banned from spending time alone with a man for the week before the pageant results were announced. And that was because in 1937, and this is a huge deal, Miss America, but the winner of Miss America, instead of being there for the ceremony when the crown was placed on her head, was absent because she'd run off with her chaperone for the week. And the crown had to be placed on an empty chair. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's such a good story. Just give it to someone else, wouldn't you? Well, no, they had to stand by their principles, and okay. their principles were that Bette Cooper had won. Wow. Yeah. And Bette Cooper didn't give a shit. The only, reason, <laughs> the only reason she'd entered was because her family kind of wanted a holiday in New Jersey, and they were kind of against the contest, but they were like, come on, our daughter's not going to win. Look at her. Um, and <laughs> genuinely, they were like, you'll never win, so it's fine. And she did win, and um, they had a chaperone for the week, like a driver to drive them around the events the week before the event. And she liked him. She started flirting with him. He was called Louis Off, and she ran off with him. Ah, <laughs> yeah. nice. Um, they did have, the, genuinely, it was in the contract, and this is Miss America, where they would say that you had to pledge a vow to not having been either married or pregnant in order to enter the competition. Like, they were so stringent on the idea that you had really? to be this pure person and there were countless examples again just the the fact that the women who did enter it buckled the system when they won a lot of them just saying i'm not playing up to the the thing that uh, you're expecting of me um but they did have all these clauses that you had to do as you're going yeah. they still do yeah they still do like, yeah, you yeah. can't be married but they, they... Well, there is there is mrs world there is mrs Genuinely, world that really is there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's mrs world which is for married women but they had a huge row last year because at the prize giving, one of the contestants punched the winner and <laughs> ripped the crown off her head, saying, "You're you're divorced." And then, <laughs> like genuinely, this happened. And the winner said, "I'm separated. I'm not divorced." And so, wow, not great, Mrs. World if you, Canada. Um, if the marriage was broken down that far, if you are still. divorced, are you allowed to go back into the Miss America? Or that's Miss Annulment. You're thinking okay. of, which is. <laughs> Completely different, yeah. Uh, there was a controversy in Miss World in 2013. Uh, this was Miss Uzbekistan. Uh, the Uzbekistan officials said that she'd left a few things off her profile, uh, namely the fact that the country has never held a Miss Uzbekistan contest. <laughs> oh, wow. And they had literally no idea who she was. She just rocked up and she went, yeah, I'm Miss Uzbekistan. And they went, all right, then. <laughs> That's awesome. That's big brain time. That <laughs> That's is. That's amazing. How did she do? Did they keep her in or did uh, she? They kept her in, yeah. She didn't do what? particularly well, but she, um, yeah, she stayed in the competition. That's so good. Uganda, for the Miss Uganda contest in 2014, you have to milk a cow. Wow. And this was when Museveni, president of Uganda, 2014, sent the army in to run the Miss Uganda contest because he decided they weren't promoting the right kind of values. Feels like he doesn't have the right um, priorities. But um, so their questions involve being quizzed on farming techniques, you know, which udder do you pull, which seed do you sow? Which udder do you pull? Uh, which udder do you pull? Pull the other one. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, in Miss Navajo, um, you have to know how to butcher a sheep properly. Miss, miss where? Navajo, like oh, the Native right. yeah, American yeah, yeah. people. There's one question that what someone got in 2012. Uh, they were asked, what are you supposed to do with a sheep's head? Any, any ideas? 
Depends really what your interests are, I suppose. Let's. <laughs> Oh, is that the ventriloquism act that comes up later in the talent <laughs> round? Let's say um, if you want to cook it. I'd curry it. <laughs> Sheep's head, yeah? Yeah, you can't taste any of it in the end, can you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not in the Navajo people, because this oh. is all about the... You have to know all about the Navajo customs Ooh. from history and stuff. Julienne. Chocolate julienne. <laughs> no. no. You wrap it in aluminium foil and put it on the fire. Oh, can't be that old a tradition if it involves aluminium foil. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of wet wipes and you're done. <laughs> no, they got the person who answered that question, even though they kind of got it right, because that is the modern way of doing it, they got booed because they answered in English and you're supposed to answer in Navajo, but they couldn't oh. remember the Yeah, the words. Navajo for aluminium foil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to talk about the outrage of beauty contests uh, leading to people feeling pressured to have plastic surgery, you know, work done when they shouldn't. And the worst thing was this December just gone. It was a contest in Saudi Arabia, and it was the camel beauty contest where 40 camels had to be disqualified because they'd had Botox and facelifts. Oh. <laughs> those, <laughs> those humps look suspiciously pert to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real issue. There's $66 million worth of prize money up for grabs, but you are not allowed to enhance in any way the camel's heads, necks, humps, dress, or posture, and dozens <laughs> of breeders did. What, how, are they, how, how are they manipulating the camel's looks? They gave them Botox to inflate their body parts. Uh, they also had rubber bands that inflated their body parts in ways that I don't understand. To oh. be honest, for this prize money, I'm willing to dress up as a camel and go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> oh, well, I think you think a lot of yourself if you think you dressed up as a camel will be more attractive than an actual camel. I do, James. I absolutely, I back myself on this one. In a camel beauty contest where you're looking for something with two humps, a nice long face, and Andy thinks, nah, I could just dress up as a camel and no, win it. I've got a nice long face, and I think the humps, I'll sort something out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got to wrap up, guys. Uh, okay. Yeah? yeah. James, did you want to lob one more thing in, or are we... No, uh, no. I can if you want. Um, there is this thing in China where models will be given a job, and they'll be saying, oh, come over here, it's like a modeling job. And then they're told to pretend to be like Miss America or Miss Brazil or whatever. And um, there was someone who was um, from Brazil who was pretending to be Miss Chile, uh, someone from Ukraine who was pretending to be a Miss America. And the reason is that they take them to these like tiny little towns in the middle of nowhere and they say, they're not going to know what Miss America is supposed to look like. So I'm just going to put a sash on you <laughs> and we're going to pretend that we've managed to fly in all of these beauty contest winners from all around the world. That's great. Isn't well, that amazing? Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to say I'm the fittest camel in Saudi Arabia 2022. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, we need to wrap up. That is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we could be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland andy you can at, be found on at andrew hunter m james uh, at james harkin and anna you can email podcast.qi.com yep or you can get us on our group account which is at no such thing or you can go to our website no such thing as a fish.com all of our previous episodes are up there big fans of that url there uh <laughs> 
Dublin, just to say, you guys fucking rock. We love coming here so much. Thank you for having us. For everyone listening at home, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye!